Rory Spiegel and Ryan Redecki, and this is the Annals of Emergency Medicine podcast. It is August 2023, and we're back again. No guests this month. Um, you know, with the the summer holidays and scheduling, it was a bit tough to schedule. So you have Ryan and and myself this month. But I promise some brand new voices coming up in the fall. Ryan, how you doing? Excellent. It's my birthday. <laughs> Happy birthday. It really oh, is. Yeah. It was yesterday in uh, New Zealand and it's today in the United States. So look at that. You get two birthdays when you're uh, when you're an expat like that. Let's be serious. We're gonna celebrate my birthday all month long. <laughs> okay. You're one of those, huh? <laughs> <laughs> all right. But enough about that. We'll get right into the articles here with the uh, first article from the August issue. It's called Cannabis Use Patterns and Whole Blood Cannabinoid Profiles of Emergency Department Patients with Suspected Cannabinoid Hyperemesis Syndrome. Our lead author here is Rachel Whiteman, and she is at Brown University. The nice thing about emergency medicine is once you've got things sort of figured out, myocardial infarction, stroke, etc., there's always folks out there innovating new ways to challenge the emergency department. 20 years ago, we didn't have e-scooters, avocado knife injuries were rare, and, of course, I don't think I saw a single cannabinoid hyperemesis patient while I was in training. This is a single-center observational study uh, enrolling a convenient sample of 34 patients who attended the emergency department in Providence, Rhode Island, with suspected cannabinoid hyperemesis. The interesting bit about this study is that they followed them both with symptom diaries, but also performed serial blood testing for cannabinoids and their metabolites. As you might expect, this is a group of folks who use cannabis every day, nearly all of whom who used multiple times a day, and most of whom used within an hour or two of waking up in the morning. All participants had detectable cannabinoid concentrations in blood consistent with their claimed use, And, uh, you know, it isn't specifically of any clinical relevant interest to us in the emergency department, but there were clear differences in relative concentrations and certain metabolites between symptomatic and asymptomatic periods. The metabolites 11-hydroxy-delta-9-THC and 11-nor-9-carboxy-delta-9-THC were elevated at the follow-up blood draw at asymptomatic points, but not in the ED at the moment of the symptomatic episode. So this gives you some insight into why patients are coming to the emergency department at only certain times in their daily use, as opposed to all the time in their daily use, as the relative concentration of these varying metabolites changes over time. So it it doesn't specifically give us a whole lot of additional insight into how to manage it or how to prevent it or what interventions need to be performed. But um, seeing these different uh, metabolites in the body systems uh, gives us another small step step towards identifying potentially more targeted treatments for the condition than our present strategies, Droperidol. I mean, why do we need more targeted treatments? Droperidol works so well. It's a a fairly miracle drug for this kind of uh, complaint. Yeah, it was interesting. I always thought of this as, as more of a withdrawal symptom than anything else. But, you know, this kind of suggests that it may not be withdrawal and more, you know, a buildup of one of the metabolites that's, that's causing most of these symptoms. Um, and I don't know enough about the metabolism of cannabinoids uh, to say whether this is, this is kind of like a, a withdrawal syndrome as one metabolite is transformed into a different metabolite and then the relative balance of things throws everything out of whack. Um, but, uh, you know, certainly there is an obvious difference in the whole blood profiles. Uh, and this can probably be of useful research interest to somebody down the road. Yeah, I mean, again, like we've got a pretty good treatment that works, you know, fairly well. The question is, like, how do you, you know, talk to these patients and counsel them on, you know, how to get rid of this going forward so they don't have to keep coming back to the emergency department? Agree. Cool. All right. Well, moving on. 
our next article is Effect of Carbon Monoxide Poisoning on Epilepsy Development, a Nationwide Population-Based Study. And the lead author is Yusang Meng. So it's not hard to believe that carbon monoxide poisoning is associated with epilepsy, but the, the data linking these two things is fairly minimum. So these authors sought to evaluate the relationship between carbon monoxide poisoning and epilepsy. And they looked at data from the Taiwan National Health Insurance Research Database and examined patients aged greater than 20 uh, admitted to the hospital between 2000 and 2010 and compared patients with CO2 poisoning to match controls. For every one CO2 poison patient, they matched to about five patients without CO2 poisoning. So they looked at a little over 8,000 patients with CO2 poisoning and 41,000 without CO2 poisoning. The mean age in this study population was 39, and 42% of them were male. The exposed group had a greater proportion of comorbidities in the control group, and these were hypertension, diabetes, coronary artery disease, and stroke as the most common. After adjustment, CO2 poison patients exhibit greater hazard ratios for subsequent epilepsy, meaning they were at a higher risk of developing epilepsy downstream after being exposed to carbon monoxide. And they tried to control for all the comorbidities that they saw in the disbalances. And it's, I think it's an interesting study. I think it's a reasonable start since we really had no data on this. And like I said earlier, it makes sense that patients exposed to CO poisoning who have possible brain injury from it go on to subsequently develop epilepsy. But obviously, there are a ton of confounders here. I mean, the biggest is the disbalance in the comorbidities. You could also see in this, the, the data actually shows that patients with increased stroke are also at higher risk of epilepsy downstream. And so it's a little hard to find a true linkage here. They also just didn't have like the actual amount of exposure, like what were the CO2 levels, how serious were the injuries. It would be interesting to see if patients with more severe exposures or poisonings had a higher risk of epilepsy. That, you know, that might strengthen the linkage here. Yeah, I mean, this has tons, has tons of face validity. Almost anything that causes some sort of ischemic or hypoxic or intracellular damage to the brain cells and specifically sensitive brain cells is going to cause, uh, you know, if there's structural brain damage, you're going to have a higher risk for epilepsy. So I believe the association, I don't believe necessarily the precise magnitude or effect size that they've detected. Don't have no doubt that this is a true association. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's fair. Uh, it also is like, what are you going to do with this, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you had a CO2 poisoning, you might be at higher risk of epilepsy. You know, certainly this isn't enough data that, you know, we're going to start pre-treating everybody preventively. But, you know, it's just like with everything, you're going to kind of watch patients and see how it develops. Yeah, uh, it just justifies, you know, additional research into reversing the intracellular mechanisms of carbon monoxide poisoning if there's possible. You know, hyperbaric oxygen is uh, oh. curious. <laughs> <laughs> Certainly, it's, you know, but it's all we have at the moment. So uh, you know, more research to prevent these sort of downstream effects uh, it justifies additional research into these sorts of treatments. Um, uh, the next article we're going to talk about from this issue is called Impact of Emergency Department Universal Screening and Automated Clinical Decision Support for Opioid Use Disorder Treatment, a Difference in Differences Analysis. Our lead author is Margaret Lowenstein, and they're at the University of Pennsylvania. When I say automated clinical decision support, what you should hear in your head is best practice alert. And now that I've given you that a moment of acute traumatic stress and raised your anxiety levels, let us now explore how these clinicians have been, in the words of the authors, nudged to provide a different stream of care for patients. This is a quasi-experimental design of the before and after type at three hospitals, compared with two other hospitals that did not deploy this same screening tool and best practice alert. 
effectively, the intervention starts by adding yet another screening question to triage. The answer to which triggers either downstream nursing interventions for withdrawal, downstream discharge advice, and a banner with discharge orders for the treating clinician. There were 2,462 uh, visits to intervention EDs and 731 visits to control EDs. And it's a bit of a tough differences and differences comparison, unfortunately. At the intervention EDs, the base rate of documenting withdrawal symptoms, treating with buprenorphine, or providing naloxone a discharge was dramatically higher to start with, as in the base rate at the intervention EDs for providing buprenorphine a discharge was 19%, where in the control EDs, it was a mere 1.7%. And then, yes, at the intervention hospitals, these authors went, witnessed an increase in the rates of identification and treatment between their pre- and post-period. But because the control EDs are so vastly different, they're not truly a useful control comparison. And it's hard to draw a much useful conclusion regarding the utility of this intervention. The intervention hospitals were staffed with ex-wayward physicians, were urban hospitals witnessing the opioid crisis, and were likely changing practice in tandem with the intervention that was rolled out in a way the control hospitals wouldn't have been. I say we have a lot more work to do here to ensure this extra alert burden is actually effective. Yeah, you know, I've, I think I've made my thoughts clear that I'm not in favor of most alert burdens that we have and increasing alert burdens just make everything an alert burden and after a while. It just adds to the, the the workload and the strain and stress on providers. I think all in all, this is a fairly important uh, intervention and we've seen from previous studies that when you actually want to make change in the emergency department, it's interventions like this that do make change. How much change is questionable, how long it lasts is also questionable, but I agree. All in all, I think they just need a better comparison group and we need more information before we add this kind of burden to our practitioners. And we've seen lots of times in which you know uh, there's an initial period where there's a rollout and there's a high uptake and there's a high you know rate of acknowledging and a high rate of practice change. And then the next focus and the next alert comes out and the previous right. alerts you know the practice changes it kind of just drifts back to its base rate again this is important but so is sepsis so is every you know so is acute mi so is the timely treatment of stroke apparently and it just go the list goes on about what's important and the more alerts you have means that all of a sudden the less alerts you have nothing's important you right. know? It's like, <laughs> there's no nothing is important anymore because everything has an alert and we all we all experience this same alert burden in our hospitals it's nonsensical um and it's just there's just no focus on what's truly important anymore uh, yeah. because it's quote unquote all important which we all knew this so yeah i think that's yeah. fair. doesn't discount the importance of the intervention but it does discount the whether we should actually putting be putting all these alerts in process yeah all right next article patient perspective on seeking emergency care for acute low back pain and access to physical therapy in the emergency department lead author is howard kim so these authors conducted focus group and individual interview among patients visiting the emergency department for acute low back pain. They recruited patients who were already participating in an ongoing single center observational study of patients who were receiving physical therapy initiated from the emergency department after presenting with acute lower back pain. And so they took these patients and essentially conducted four focus groups of 18 patients total and then 27 individual interviews. 
And during these focus groups and interviews, a number of themes became apparent. The first one being the decision to seek emergency care for low back pain is motivated by a number of things. One and most obvious is the severe pain and the disability that results from it. And then the other big thing is fear that something is catastrophically wrong. So there is an emergency. But while in the emergency department, they had various goals, the most important being getting out of pain. They were reluctant to take pain medication for fear of addiction, so on and so forth, but acknowledged their benefits once they took them and how they were able to become more mobile and more functional. They did have perceived benefit for direct access to physical therapy, and I think mostly this is is, is the ability to, to start physical therapy fairly immediately and not have to go through the waiting list and waiting you know weeks to see a physical therapist, finding one, so on and so forth. They felt that physical therapy ultimately did help their recovery, but also felt that the pain, at least initially, was a barrier to performing the exercises that was needed in physical. You know, it's a small study. Overall, there was about 45 patients that participated in a single center. So, you know, there is a question of external validity. I think that being said, this has a lot of face validity. Um, I think these themes are fairly universal. Patients presenting to the emergency department in pain in general, obviously, there's the pain itself and the resulting disability, and then just the fear that something's you know seriously wrong that makes you come to the emergency department. And I think it's just a nice look at that, that what patients are looking for when they come to the ED. And you know, so often we're focused on ruling out the emergencies, making sure the patient doesn't have the aortic dissection, you know, the gallstone, all the other things that can cause serious harm. That we forget about the pain and disability that has brought them there as well. Yeah, so we actually have physical therapy and physio in our department, uh, you know, for a fair portion of the day. And I think it's great because, you know, we can focus on that initial part, what the patients are concerned about, getting them out of pain. And then we can provide them with the tools to sort of mobilize and cope with their pain and give them something to, you know, something productive and constructive to focus on. And it's nice to see that that sort of like, you know, anecdotal idea of how I see the value of PT is also manifested in the patient perspectives in this article. Um, this is not an outcomes research study. This doesn't show that the people in the PT arm got you know, faster recovery and had you know, fewer opiate days or anything cool like that. But it's just a nice, it's, it's as, a, as far as patient-centered medicine goes and at least meeting the patient's per, you know, perceived needs, um, this, this does show from the patient's feedback that there is a productive role for having physical therapy in the department. And we don't just use them for back pain. We use them for all manner of different things for the frail the frailty people and all those sorts of things. So it's not just a one one shot sort of intervention. PT is just there for back pain, um, but uh, we do we do engage them for some of our patients who are disabled by their back pain, and I think it helps a ton. It definitely saves admissions occasionally. Right. And I think the other thing is just now you have someone that can spend more time with the patients when we just don't have that ability to sit there, go over the stretches, go over the exercises with them for, for longer periods of time, which just gives them that that experience, obviously. But then they, they could always have you as their doctor, Rory. <laughs> they could have me. <laughs> <laughs> You're a, a double, double threat, a critical care physical therapist. Yeah. <laughs> For those listeners that don't know, I am also a physical therapist in a past life. I every right. once in a while do some shoulder exercises and back stretches with patients in the emergency department. The staff start looking at me strangely. How about the ICU? <laughs> I, I have much. gotten someone up and walking with a ventilator. That uh, 
So I think I'm up next. And uh, the next article we're going to talk about from this issue is clinical and laboratory predictors of dehydration severity in children with diabetic ketoacidosis. Our lead author here is Jennifer Trainer, and they are at the Anne and Robert Lurie Children's Hospital of Chicago, associated with Northwestern University. This is a very comprehensive article, and uh, we're not actually going to spend a ton of time discussing it because the takeaway is just not terribly impactful in emergency department practice. In short, these authors did a reanalysis of a Pediatric Emergency Care Applied Research Network, PCARN, study on diabetic ketoacidosis to see if they could determine clinical and laboratory values predictive of severe dehydration. The long and short of it was yes and no. There were a few associated with a greater chance of severe dehydration, including new onset diabetes, worsening pH, high anion gap, But the odds ratios were all between 0.5 and 2, and nearly all right around 1. Which is to say, none of them were strong enough predictors of severe dehydration or its absence to be relied upon. Then, of course, from an emergency department standpoint, most all of these patients were suffering from at least mild dehydration, if not moderate or severe. And almost all patients here presenting with diabetic ketoacidosis would be appropriate for some early intervention with a 30 cc per kilogram fluid bolus and subsequent reassessment of volume status to be done during admission. So, important work to, in order to confirm what we're presently doing to be sensible, but no further novel insights upon which to build. Yeah, I, I mean, I thought, like, scientifically, this is really interesting work. I love fluid management and quantifying dehydration. I thought the way they quantified it is a little weird. You know, it was based on their admission weight versus their discharge weight, meaning their discharge weight is like their rehydrated weight. The gold standard. But, <laughs> you know, if we use that in my ICU, <laughs> yeah, we, it, uh, we, we make people gain like 20 or 30 pounds of fluid. <laughs> and that's not exactly their optimal rehydration weight. I would say they're overhydrated at that moment. But I do think it's an interesting thought. I, I think the important thing is what you said, that, that none of these are good predictors of how dehydrated someone is, and you need to continually reassess them. Obviously, sicker patients are more likely to be more he- dehydrated than the, the less severe DKI patients, but none of it is a great predictor. The other thing that this is just a public service announcement, you don't have to replace the whole fluid volume with an IV in the first 24 hours. <laughs> just get people eating and drinking again. And the best marker or the best tool we have to replete fluid volume is the patient's own brain. They will do it really well if you just get them tolerating PO and then they can drink fluids and replete their own volume status. It works really well. You don't need to put 12 liters into them in one day. Yeah, uh, it's interesting. The The culture here in New Zealand is a whole lot less intravenous fluids and a whole lot more oral fluids, uh, particularly in children and, and de- in dehydration states. So it's good to see. And I think it's very much more sensible and certainly less expensive and less invasive. So it's really insane that we, we like conflate dehydration with with hypovolemic shock, right? They're two different things. Hypovolemic shock is end organ malperfusion because we don't have enough blood reaching the organs. And that's where you give IV fluids to, you know, actually retain or uh, reestablish blood flow to the organs. But if you're dehydrated and you're not in shock, you can just let people tolerate, let them replete themselves PO as long as you can get them tolerating it. And that works way better. Mm-hmm. Oh, I, I, I don't disagree. You're, you're preaching to at least the choir on this end. Now you're preaching to the, the rest of our EM workforce, yeah. I hope. All right. <laughs> Next article. 
optimal dose of intranasal dexmedetomidine for laceration repair in children, a phase two dose ranging study. Dexmedetomidine is a central alpha-2 agonist that's often used in patients undergoing mechanical ventilation uh, in the ICU, but it's gaining popularity to be used for procedural sedation as well in the emergency department. And so these authors essentially conducted a dose-finding study for intranasal dexmedetomidine in children undergoing laceration repair. They enrolled children 1 to 10 with an isolated laceration less than 5 centimeters requiring a single-layer closure with sutures. The patients received topical anesthetic, and they had to be predicted to resist the laceration repair by the caregiver, the physician, or the bedside nurse. So mainly, they were going to fight a little bit. The children were non-randomly assigned to one, two, three, four micrograms per kilogram of intranasal dexmedetomidine. Uh, and they enrolled 55 children total. Uh, 64% of these were male. The median age was four. The median number of sutures was three, so fairly small lacerations, uh, and the median laceration length was two centimeters. And most of these occurred on the face. Long story short, the dose that was associated with the greatest portion of, pa- of patients achieving adequate sedation was the three micrograms per kilogram dose. If you look at table two, which I think is probably the best kind of like summary of their results, you see starting with one going up to four. As you went up, you saw the amount of patients that were under sedated at one to two mics per kilogram were the highest. And then three and four, you saw you achieved better, uh, you achieved adequate sedation more often. Uh, In this case, in the three micrograms uh, per kilogram group, it was 62% achieved it. In the four micrograms per kilogram group, it was 57%. So even then, it really wasn't that great, right? And I think that's the big point. There was one adverse event decreased oxygen saturation less than 90% for lasting more than 30 seconds. It resolves spontaneously, much like with lots of other sedation, just by repositioning the head. And this happened in the four microgram per kilogram group. And so the limitations here is, is, is it's a fairly small study. And, and especially when, when so few patients are, are, are placed in each group and it's not randomized, you, you have a chance of, of having a lot of bias introduced to the study. Uh, for example, 80% of the proceduralists in the patients that got three or four micrograms per kilogram were attending physicians, compared to only uh, 33 and 67% in the one or two milligram per kilogram groups. And, and this is going to lead to just better experience using sedative agents, better technique, on your suturing and, and lack repair, which would actually probably cause less discomfort. But all in all, I think the most important thing is there's not going to be one magic number, right? Like, like you see that with all sedation you use, you know, you do like dose finding studies. Every time you give someone propofol, you push some, and if it's enough, you can do the procedure. And if it's not, you give more and more until you get them to the achieved state where you can actually do the procedure comfortably. And you're always there watching the airway for these adverse events. Um, and so, Obviously, more data is needed, but I predict there's never going to be a perfect dose for everybody. You're going to have to just titrate up your doses till you get the effect you want. And it also depends on what you're comparing it to. If you're comparing it with just intranasal midazolam, then yeah, that's it. You're probably going to end up with similar or better results potentially. And maybe there'll be a head-to-head study between the two. If you're comparing it against ketamine, then you know, intra- intramuscular ketamine works fantastically for laceration repair, but the recovery time is quite prolonged, unfortunately. You, you have different trade-offs with different agents. And this one, you know, they, they mentioned in the introduction that like their survey of physicians said that you know, like two-thirds of them would be interested in using this if it was proven to be effective. And well, 
Well, I don't think they've done that yet. <laughs> if you look at like you know, how satisfied people were with the, using this agent for a sedation, even up to the three and four milligram doses, there's still substantial numbers of these clinicians who were not satisfied with how this, this worked out. And I, but I think that's going to be a similar experience with intranasal midazolam. There's going to be lots of physicians who are not satisfied with how well it's working, which is, God, I really don't like using it. That's why I almost always end up using ketamine if I actually have to do an important repair. There, there's, there's a it's it's always great. It's emergency medicine. Let's have different tools to do different things. And I'm glad these people are exploring this and describing its you know, ability, you know, its relative merits and 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 not. Um, and then uh, we'll probably see more research into this. So I'm 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 great. I love this research. This is great. I'm not ready to use it yet. <laughs> you know, I use a lot of dexmedetomidine in the ICU, and it is a slow onset drug, right? Like unless you're bolusing it, which comes with a lot of bradycardia, it does take some time to work. It's not like ketamine where you can titrate it up quickly. And I think I think the other thing that makes ketamine fairly good is is you can overshoot and you still have very little complications, right? So you can be fairly heavy-handed with it where some of our other sedative medications, you have to really kind of be careful as you titrate up and and, and just be more precise with your dose finding. I'm sure we'll see more uh, more work from this group in the future, so looking forward to it. Uh, I think the last article we're going to do from this uh, issue is called Hyperacute T-Wave in the Early Diagnosis of Acute Myocardial Infarction. And our lead author is Luca Kotlin, and I believe they're at the University Hospital Basel in University of Basel in Switzerland. This is a mildly interesting, if limited, look at the idea of hyperacute T-Waves for use in the diagnosis of acute myocardial infarction. The underlying concept being ST segment elevation myocardial infarction is its own distinct diagnosis, but non-ST segment elevation syndromes may require additional testing, observation, and risk missed or delayed diagnoses. Hyperacute T waves are primarily thought of as the sort of pre-STEMI changes on an ECG reflecting an acute occlusion. And this reanalysis of an APACE study data attempts to see if elevated T wave amplitudes are predicted particularly predictive of acute coronary occlusion. There were 2,437 patients analyzed for this study. Having excluded STEMI, pacemaker rhythm, left bundle branch blocks, and, importantly, left ventricular hypertrophy. The analysis looks at T-wave amplitude by individual ECG lead and the sensitivity of a T-wave amplitude exceeding the 95th percentile ranged from 3% to 13%, along with specificities right around 95%. However, from a clinically reliable finding standpoint, the better value to use for interpretation is the likelihood ratio, and nearly all the likelihood ratios were right around 1, with the highest, a 95th percentile T-wave amplitude in AVR, of only 4.3, where 10 is typically sort of the accepted threshold for when likelihood ratios start to get useful. So even in the best of circumstances, T-wave amplitude in any individual lead is not sufficient enough to rely upon for a positive diagnosis, and its absence is utterly useless. And once having folks with left ventricular hypertrophy lumped in with its corresponding effects on repolarization, from a pragmatic standpoint, incorporating isolated T-wave amplitude into evaluation is not going to be a terribly rewarding consideration. Stephen Smith authors a corresponding editorial voicing essentially this same view, but delving a bit further into the nuance of T-wave amplitude and noting a better line of inquiry may be into the diagnostic value of T-wave amplitude and corresponding area under the T-wave as compared to the QRS amplitude or R-wave height in contiguous leads. More work, though, is necessary to better define and describe specific features of T-wave changes to be useful in clinical practice. 
Yeah, I, I think that last point that, that Dr. Smith made is important that, that you're always looking at your T-wave in relation to the QRS. Um, so if you have a really big QRS, a bigger T-wave is not as concerning. But if your QRS is tiny, that then becomes a concerning T-wave. There's no data on that. I, I think Dr. Smith himself has published some, some things on this that shows some better diagnostic accuracy when you take them in combination. But again, I, I think one of the things here that's really hard to, to you know, um, actually account for is the fact that what you're using as your gold standard is an occlusion, occlusion MI or, you know, an occlusion on cath um, and, you know, using an anatomical surrogate for what we really want to know is will this benefit, will this patient benefit from cath? And the reason that we found out that patients with STEMI benefit from cath is not the anatomical findings, but rather there's a mortality benefit to patients who have STEMI who either get thrombolytics or go to the cath lab, right? And that's what we really want to know, not of whether they have an anatomical blockage. And so there's always this kind of surrogate there that doesn't quite tell us what we really want to know. So yeah, I, I think T waves in isolation are hard to use. T waves with the QRS maybe might be somewhat better, but either way, we need a lot more data and we need an actual comparing it to what we care about, which is do we do we get a benefit from cath to the patient, not finding anatomical blockages? Yeah, I mean, it's kind of a mix here. I mean, from the emergency department, we're concerned about getting revascularizing people who need who would potentially benefit from more timely revascularization. But most of our occlusion MIs don't benefit from more than just urgent revascularization, right. not emer- not emergent revascularization. So even when we do tease out exactly how some of these you know T wave amplitudes and ratios to compared to the QRS complex of the R wave in contiguous leads actually do predict occlusion, we still haven't gone the extra step to say, well, when do we take right. these patients to the cath lab when they have these sort of intermediate changes? Right, right. Do we tie it to biomarker testing? Do we tie it to their symptoms? Do we tie it to is there a time of onset? There's so we, we have a lot more work to do to, to really tease out the actual clinical relevance of this not terribly frequent subtle finding versus our typical sort of STEMI and STEMI sort of look. Um, although I, I do agree with the characterization that Stephen Smith makes that NSTEMI and the sort of occlusion MI is is a is a valid clinical entity that requires a little bit different attention. We think so, but that's going to be a that's going to be something that we're going to ha- you're going to have to talk about uh, again. This emergency medicine doesn't operate in a vacuum. Something you're going to have to talk about with your cardiology colleagues, and they're going to have to review the patient in the ECG and make their own determinations. Again, I think that's all theoretical, right? We think just because you have an occlusion, it's likely a time dependent lesion. But again, the reason STEMI was a time dependent lesion, not because it identified occlusion with any amount of accuracy, because it doesn't, is the thing we use for a time, the timely need to go to the cath lab because it was identified to save people's lives if you take people in a timely manner to the cath lab, right? So there was a true patient-oriented outcome tied to it, not an anatomic one. And so whether all this, all this stuff does sound really good, and yes, there, we know STEMI is not the best identifier of occlusion. We know there's other more subtle EKG findings that more thoroughly identify patient with inclusions. What we don't know is if that is tied to patient-oriented outcomes like we have with the data for STEMI, non-STEMI. But in the meantime, T-wave, <laughs> T-wave amplitude and isolation, especially in an individual lead, don't worry too much about it specifically. I think that's fair. All right. Well, I think that wraps us up for another month. As always, any questions, comments, concerns, we can re-reach at annalsaudio at asep.org. Otherwise, until next month, this was Rory Spiegel and Ryan Redecki, and this was the Annals of Emergency Medicine Podcast.